when we were on the trial, I still thought we won't be punished. At some point, we'll be released. But when I hear the sentence 17 years, while I was 18 years old, it was really shocking. I couldn't believe it. And I was really, really upset. Weiwei knew a Rohingya woman from Myanmar was just 18 years old when she was sentenced to 17 years in prison. Her father's sentence was 47 years. And I was telling my father, Dad, don't worry. Grandma actually alive more than 99 years. You don't have to worry and we will be able to go out, you know, again. So I was basically kind of encouraging him. The judge hear me, actually. She was just looking at me and I still remember her face. It was just unbelievable. This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Through personal stories of courage and purpose, our podcast puts a human face on the most critical human rights and social justice issues facing our world. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action, and together, to help create a better world. Stay tuned for a special thought leadership segment with Ban Ki-moon at the end of this episode. The segment is brought to you through our partnership with The Elders, an independent group of global leaders brought together by Nelson Mandela. Weiwei Nu was born in Rakhine State. She is the youngest of six children. My eldest brother is like 15 years older than me, so I'm like a baby girl at home and a privileged one, very close to my dad. And um, I remember, you know, I used to listen radio with him by sitting at the balcony of our home in Rakhine when I was very little. And he used to teach us as he was a school teacher. We didn't have like other private tutor or a school. Instead, he tutored us. You know, I enjoyed a lot of freedom and love from my siblings and from my parents. When I was in primary school, I went to the school with uh, kids from like Buddhists and Rakhine and other students, but it was not that bad. It was okay. I had a good memories and bad memories from my childhood in Rakhine State. Rakhine State is located on the western coast of Myanmar, and it is where most of the Rohingya reside. The Rohingya are a Muslim minority in Myanmar, a predominantly Buddhist country. The government doesn't acknowledge the Rohingya as one of the country's 135 official ethnic groups. For this reason, the Rohingya have been rendered stateless since 1982. Being stateless means that they don't have an official nationality of any country. As a result, they have restrictions on marriage, family planning, employment, education, religious choice, and freedom of movement. However, Weiwei believes that using that terminology can be problematic. The framework of statelessness doesn't acknowledge the belonging of the people to the land. So if you approach from this statelessness framework, what happens is 
you have to go through this pathway to become citizens. First of all, you need to acknowledge that you don't have a state or you don't have a country. Based on the current processes, you basically become foreigner. The most you will become is naturalized citizen, right? Under this framework, which is exactly the problem of the Rohingya. We don't simply want to be naturalized citizens or second-class citizens. We're not lesser than any other in the country. The Rohingya weren't always considered stateless. Myanmar was ruled by the British for over a century, starting in 1824. The country was annexed by British imperialists and called Burma after the dominant ethnic group, Burman. For this reason, a significant amount of laborers from what we now know as India and Bangladesh migrated to Myanmar. Here, the Premier and Takin Noor, the Burmese Prime Minister, signed the document making Burma an independent state outside the British Commonwealth. After Myanmar's independence in 1948, the government viewed the migration that took place during the British rule as illegal. This led many Buddhists to reject the term Rohingya and call them Bengali instead. In 1988, the military changed the name of the country to Myanmar as a way to leave behind the name Burma that was inherited from the colonial past. The country today is known as both Myanmar and Burma. The names are used interchangeably. In 1982, a new citizenship law was passed. To obtain the most basic category of citizenship, one had to prove that one's family lived in Myanmar before the country's independence. Many Rohingya could not provide such paperwork because it was either unavailable or denied to them. As a result, this law stripped the majority of the Rohingya of their Myanmar citizenship. Although Weiwei's early childhood was relatively peaceful, things began to change in 1990. After four decades of military dictatorship, elections were taking place, and Weiwei's father ran for political office. He was part of the National League for Democracy, led by Aung San Suu Kyi, a democratic icon in the country. The election was convincingly won by their party. But the military leaders refused to transfer power, and the tensions escalated. My parents or people in Rakhine State started to realize the restrictions around their life, the deployment of military from the Union Central Government. There were more and more military troops came into Rakhine State, and there were more and more like, you know, scrutinizations of people's life intimidation, threat, in many ways. In 1991, a year after the elections, the military forcibly displaced over 250,000 Rohingya into Bangladesh. This was one of the many crackdowns that had forced hundreds of thousands of Rohingya to flee since the 1970s. During these attacks, the military had razed Rohingya villages and committed severe human rights violations. However, negotiations with Bangladesh and the United Nations Office for the High Commissioner for Human Rights, or UNHCR, resulted in the forceful return of most of these Rohingya back to the Rakhine state. Weiwei was just a child when this happened. So I remember visiting the temporary shelter of the returnees and buying things like stuff from them. And I wasn't sure what was going on. And I knew they were refugee, but 
as a child, I didn't understand the complexity behind it. Due to his involvement with the pro-democracy movement, Weiwei's father continued to face harassment from the authorities. He decided that it was time for his family to move to Yangon, the then capital of Myanmar. Growing up, Weiwei became more aware of the discriminatory reality that the Rohingya faced. I kind of understood that there is a struggle for our identity as Rohingya. And Rohingya was not allowed to use public spaces. And I was also aware that in Rakhine State, there was systemic removal of Rohingya public servants from the system. I was also aware that there was like restrictions on movement. For example, Rohingya were not allowed to travel from one village to another village. There was uh, restrictions on marriage. Like, for example, if you want to marry someone, you need to get permissions from different places. And it's not easy all the time. You need to pay bribe or other sort of gift. And I was also aware that women were restricted to have birth. And if we have more than two children, the children become illegal and blacklisted. And I was aware that, you know, the education of the youth were extremely challenging. They were not allowed to go to the university. The part that I didn't understand is the intensity and the intention of the whole thing. Unfortunately, Weiwei came to grasp this reality when she and the rest of her family were arrested. That was the time when I realized, you know, we were arrested because we were Rohingya. Weiwei recalls that officially, they were charged from moving from Rakhine State to Yangon without a family registration form and for obtaining a national security card under a fake name. However, Weiwei believes that their arrest was a result of the government's hidden agenda to suppress opposing parties. Their trial was held behind closed doors. They did not have access to their lawyer, nor given the right to an appeal. And when we were on the trial, I still thought we won't be punished. At some point, we'll be released. But when I hear the sentence, 17 years, while I was 18 years old, it was really shocking. I couldn't believe it. And I was really, really upset. But then I was thinking of my father and my mom, how they would feel having their young girls got in this like very long-term sentence. Her father was sentenced to 47 years. I tried not to show my emotion. I didn't cry and my sister did the same. And I was telling my father, Dad, don't worry. Grandma actually alive more than uh, 99 years. So, you know, you don't have to worry and we will be able to go out, you know, again. So I was basically kind of encouraging him. Weiwei was imprisoned with her mother and her sister while her father and brother went to separate prisons. My mom and I cried so much, like for a couple of days, for a few days. And then we started to recover and accept the reality, stay strong inside the prison. It was especially difficult because 
the prison conditions in Burma is very different than like prison you could imagine in Europe or in US. You know, it's severely unhygiene. We didn't have clean water to drink or to take a shower. The floors are dirty with the bugs and we didn't have clean food. All aspect of the life in the prison was really horrible. So it was really difficult to physically adapt with the condition as well as emotionally cope with the reality. Weiwei and her family spent seven years in prison. In 2012, they were unexpectedly released under a presidential amnesty. After five decades of military rule, a military-based civilian government had taken power. Hundreds of political prisoners, like Weiwei's family, were freed, alongside activists like Aung San Suu Kyi. The government claimed that this was to allow them to participate in the task of nation-building. So we were very hopeful, and we thought we would be able to engage with the political transformations and we'll be able to contribute and we'll be able to help bring democracy in the country. But in reality, it's very different than what we were expecting, what we were hoping for, especially under this military-facilitated democracy, which is not actually democracy. The year Weiwei was released, there was a series of clashes between the Rakhine Buddhists and the Rohingya. The violence the Rohingya experienced resulted in their displacement into internment camps. Today, the government confines approximately 130,000 Rohingya in 24 inhumane internment camps. These are essentially modern-day concentration camps. That is Matthew Smith, co-founder and CEO of Fortify Rights, a nonprofit that collects, documents, and analyzes human rights violations. Rohingya are not permitted to leave uh, these areas. And at the same time, the authorities are ensuring that there are these avoidable deprivations in humanitarian aid. You know, residents in the camps don't have adequate access to education, healthcare, in some cases, even food, water, medicines, things of that nature. Uh, so this is not unrelated to what we would consider acts of genocide, avoidable deprivations in aid, confining groups of people to a place and then denying them access to humanitarian aid is essentially a way to destroy this community. In 2016 and 2017, the situation of the Rohingya in the Rakhine state prompted a group of Rohingya militants to attack Myanmar authorities. They killed a dozen members of the Myanmar police. This resulted in a horrifying response from the Myanmar army. We were documenting full-scale massacres, men, women, and children being shot, in some cases at point-blank range, infant children being thrown into fires. Um, the army and their proxies were moving into Rohingya villages, hundreds of villages, burning them to the ground. And as people fled, they were opening fire. The result was the fastest refugee outflow since the Rwanda genocide. About 742,000 Rohingya fled to neighboring Bangladesh, where there were already hundreds of thousands of refugees. 
The narrative put out by the Myanmar government was that the army had simply responded to the attacks by the Rohingya militants. But a report by Fortify Rights reveals a different reality. What we ended up uncovering was that the Myanmar authorities were actually preparing for many months, essentially to perpetrate mass atrocity crimes. What we had documented was that over the course of months and weeks, the Myanmar military was systematically going village to village in northern Rakhine state. And they were collecting sharp objects, knives, farming equipment from Rohingya homes, essentially disarming the population. And then at the same time, the authorities were arming non-Rohingya civilians and essentially training them to commit violence. Uh, One Rohingya eyewitness had told me at the time that it looked as though the military was training their neighbors to kill. And that's essentially what they did. They were doing other things like tearing fencing down, which gave them a cleaner line of sight on the civilian population. So piecing this together, quite a sinister picture emerges. These atrocities led to many people internationally to call out what the Myanmar government did as a genocide. Genocide, as described by the United Nations Genocide Convention, means acts committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. Nobel Peace Prize laureate Aung San Suu Kyi was the state counselor and the minister of foreign affairs at the time. She claimed that there had been no genocide. In doing so, she lost the trust of the international community that had championed her for decades. This is a situation in which a former human rights icon uh, taking a, a very dramatic fall from grace to the point where she's now defending the Myanmar military against very well-documented allegations of genocide and crimes against humanity. In February 2021, the military government overthrew Aung San Suu Kyi in a coup. Under military rule, the Rohingya continued to find themselves in a vulnerable position. The Gambia, with the backing of 57 members of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, has filed a case against Myanmar before the International Court of Justice, or the ICJ. The country is alleging that Myanmar's atrocities against the Rohingya in Rakhine State violate various provisions of the Genocide Convention. For context, the Genocide Convention is an international treaty that most countries in the world, including Myanmar, joined after World War II. It is intended to both prevent the crime of genocide, as well as to ensure that countries are held accountable if they commit that crime. The judges of the court did say that all of the information and evidence that has been presented so far by investigative groups would lead one to consider many of these acts that occurred acts of genocide. That's David Sheffer. He's a former U.S. ambassador-at-large for war crimes under President Bill Clinton and clinical professor emeritus of Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law. Now, there's a distinction, though. You can have an act of genocide, which is killing, wounding, creating conditions of life. But in order to reach the crime of genocide and say, ah, this was genocide, you have to marry that with the specific intent to actually do all these acts of genocide. And that is very hard to prove. Now, what has evolved over the years is what we call an inference of specific intent, whereby 
the court recognizes that you may not have a document that says government B is, you know, has just signed a document saying it's going to commit genocide, but rather you have a lot of actions by that government, a lot of statements by that government that lead you to infer that it has specific intent to commit genocide. And that's precisely what is before the international court today in the Rohingya case. Even though the case is ongoing, the ICJ ordered Myanmar to cease all forms of alleged genocide against the Rohingya. They also asked them to preserve all evidence about such acts and to report every six months to the ICJ. There is another ongoing investigation concerning Myanmar at the International Criminal Court, or the ICC. Unlike the ICJ, the ICC does not adjudicate on states, but on individuals. In November 2019, a judge began an investigation into Myanmar's forced deportation of Rohingya and related crimes against humanity. So right now, in front of the International Criminal Court, investigations are taking place to, first of all, sharply understand and define the crime of forcible deportation, and then identify individuals within the Myanmar government and military who had the intention to actually forcibly deport the Rohingya into Bangladesh. Now, that doesn't mean that the International Criminal Court ultimately would get what we call jurisdiction over these individuals in order to bring them to trial in The Hague because these individuals could just live their lives in Myanmar and never leave and never be subject to an arrest warrant or the execution of an arrest warrant outside of the borders of Myanmar. But they would have to stay in Myanmar and avoid arrest if they were indicted by the International Criminal Court. Despite these efforts, Weiwei believes that the international community should have paid attention to the Rohingya sooner. The violence attack which happened within two months in 2017, it was a result of all these cumulative processes before, like classification processes, dehumanizing processes, discrimination processes, all of this. It was a result of these processes, which didn't happen within a short period of time. It was a living experience, day-to-day experience of people that the world overlooked or underestimated the impact. And I think that's where we failed. And now we need to redefine definitions of genocide. We need to redefine international laws. They're not relevant anymore. Like, for example, during these processes, some UN agencies were there. They were simply seeing these conditions as a discrimination. It was not simple discrimination. It was an active state policies against a particular group. And you need to take it seriously. But then they try to apply whatever international mechanisms available there to help people with goodwill. And I acknowledge that. But it wasn't sufficient. You are not going to the core. You are not addressing the core of it. You are not seeing the situation, complex situation as it is. Until 2010, there used to be a resettlement from Bangladesh to third countries, like the U.S. or the U.K. 
Bangladesh stopped the program because they thought that the program attracted more Rohingya from Myanmar to cross the border into Bangladesh and to wait out until their resettlement to a third country. However, according to Fortify Rights, 90% of the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh say they want to return to Myanmar. But at the same time, they're also reporting that they feel that the situation is not safe. It's not tenable for them to consider going back to Myanmar at this time. That's Matthew again. They want the human rights violations to stop. They want the government of Myanmar to ensure access to citizenship. They want their citizenship rights restored, essentially. They want some degree of certainty that they will be protected when or if they return to Northern Rakhine State. Right now, the government of Myanmar has shown no indication that they're willing to move forward with these types of changes. At the same time, the conditions of the refugee camps in Bangladesh may be just as dire. There are needless violations taking place in Bangladesh. For example, the government has recently constructed barbed wire fencing around the refugee camps in Cox's Bazar district. You know, there are strict uh, restrictions on freedom of movement. That needs to change. That needs to stop. Economic opportunities need to be introduced to the community in a meaningful way. And their rights as refugees need to be respected. Fortify Rights released a report in 2020 on the mental health of Rohingya in such camps. And the findings are staggering. The World Health Organization and UNHCR estimate that in an emergency situation, 15 to 20 percent of an adult population experiencing that emergency will demonstrate symptoms of post-traumatic stress, depression, and other mental health symptoms. The findings that we've collected demonstrate that 90% of the Rohingya population in Bangladesh are suffering from depression. More than 60% of the population are demonstrating symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. This mental health crisis is not just due to the genocide that the Rohingya experienced in 2016 and 2017. It's also rooted in many years of systematic human rights violations. So restrictions on freedom of movement, restrictions on marriage, restrictions on childbirth, access to healthcare, education, access to livelihoods. The Rohingya in Myanmar for years, for decades, have been essentially living in an open-air prison. So if we want to address the mental health crisis, the human rights violations must be addressed. The root causes of this must be addressed. Besides addressing the root causes, governments around the world must denounce what Myanmar is doing as a crime against humanity. While the international cases remain pending, Weiwei is working hard to peacefully promote and protect the human rights of the Rohingya. The same year she was released from prison, she formed a women's peace network. This organization is composed of lawyers, community leaders, and peace activists from Myanmar and around the globe. Injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. If it can happen to Jews, it can happen to anyone else. And if it can happen to Rohingya, it can happen in your country as well. If we stay silent, the, the injustice and the crimes, it will continue. We share this planet Earth together and we deserve to be human. And that's what we call humanity, right? We need collective responsibility, cares, love, compassions, and kindness to each other, among each other. That's why I think everybody should care, and all of us has 
dreams and hope and life and emotions. I just want to ask, you know, everyone to understand and to listen people around the world and help people who need your support and try to empathize their experiences and their suffering. Weiwei and her family are among the growing number of stateless individuals around the world. In 2017, the United Nations estimated that there are approximately 3.9 million stateless individuals. But this is only a fraction of the total, and the true number could be three times higher. An estimated 12 million people may be victims of statelessness, the impacts of which are immediate and can be dire. These include communities from Kashmir, the Kurds, Bedouin tribes in the Middle East, Roma, and more recently, children born to Venezuelan parents who fled to Colombia. According to human rights law, people have the right to a nationality. I discussed the reasons of statelessness and the importance of international action to address these issues in this special segment with Ban Ki-moon. Ban Ki-moon is former Secretary General of the United Nations and is Deputy Chair of the Elders. We hear about the word stateless and statelessness quite often. We've spoken to some people who are what we would categorize as stateless, and they deem the word to be problematic. So could you please explain to us, what does it mean to be stateless? And do you think that statelessness is a problematic term? For normal cases, for most of the people, we don't pay much attention to citizenship. When you travel, you have to carry your passport. Then when you enter somewhere, then you have to identify that you are Palestinian, you are Korean, or you are British or something like this. That means we do not think on a daily basis about our citizenship. For others, citizenship and nationality is an ever-present issue or often an obstacle, obstacle, because recognition of nationality serves as a key to a host of other rights, such as education, healthy care, employment, and equality before the law. Being stateless, by legal definition, is being someone who is not recognized as a national by any country, any state. That's unfortunate. Some stateless people are also refugees, but not all the refugees are stateless. They have their you know, states and they have uh, identity card. The exact number of stateless people at this time is not known. But UN High Commissioner for Refugees estimates that there are many millions globally, of which approximately one third are children. There are stateless populations in most global regions of the world. Here, Ben Ki-moon shares the causes of statelessness. Now, statelessness may occur for a variety of uh, reasons, including, uh, first of all, discrimination against any particular ethnic, 
or religious groups or on the basis of gender. Now, second, the emergency of new states or for the transfers of territory between existing states or the gaps in nationality laws. Now, again, statelessness can also be caused by loss or deprivation of nationality. In some countries, citizens can lose their nationality simply from having lived outside their country for a long period of time. State can also deprive citizens of their nationality through changes in law that leave whole population stateless. There are many people who have to flee from here and there. There are also some migrants that may have a passport from a failed state. Then that means you don't have any statelessness. So statelessness due to the dissolution of a former state. Or you can be born into a stateless people. For example, as some 25 states around the world do not allow women to transfer nationality to their children. That becomes then children stateless people. There are many stateless people, Rohingya, who are refugees in Bangladesh because Myanmar does not give citizenship to these people, even though they were born and they're living in Myanmar. When they flee to Bangladesh, they say, no, you are Myanmar. So they become stateless. So I want to ask you, why should we care? Why should people around the world, average citizens, not those just in leadership positions, but all of us, why should we care about what's happening to the Rohingya people? Many people listening to this podcast may remember the images of many Rohingyas fleeing Myanmar in 2017. The issues are still there. Myanmar is home to the largest community of stateless people in the world, majority of whom are now also refugees in Bangladesh, having fled a sustained and ongoing campaign of ethnic cleansing, sexual assault, and murder by the Myanmar armed forces. Ongoing programs of statelessness and protracted displacement for Rohingya communities are linked to discriminatory provisions in Myanmar's 1982 citizenship law and the failure of successive governments to properly apply the law to all, particularly Rohingya ethnic minorities in Rakhine state. In 1982, narrow definition of citizenship was introduced, which links citizenship acquisition uh, to membership of a prescribed, quote unquote, national race, national race. The 1982 citizenship law is highly discriminatory and arbitrary and manifestly fails to satisfy the state's obligations under the international human rights law. The result is a system that 
institutionalizes discrimination on the basis of race or ethnicity throughout the country. According to a report from Human Rights Watch, provisions in the 1982 law perpetuate the crisis experienced by the Rohingya community as it denies Burmese citizenship to children born to those considered non-citizens. Under this system, many lifelong residents of Myanmar have effectively been rendered stateless while they are living in Myanmar. They are not regarded as Myanmar citizens. They don't have a voting right. Stateless Rohingya in Rakhine state do not enjoy protection of the state. They lack access to formal justice system. They face challenges to obtain or prove housing, land, or property rights. The government denies them many basic human rights on the basis of their statelessness uh, status, such as access to education, livelihood, or health care, or denial of humanitarian assistance. That's why they have to flee to neighboring countries. Last year, I visited Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh. There are 1.1 million refugees there. I went there together with the foreign minister of Bangladesh, and it really made me sad. I could not really see how difficult situation they are now facing. Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh and other parts of the world will not be able to return to Myanmar in safety and dignity unless there is accountability. This means that institutions and individuals that are responsible for decades-long discrimination and persecution of the Rohingya are held to account. It also means that underlying policies are changed so as to provide guarantee that such human rights violation will not happen again. We hope that this episode gave you insight into the consequences and implications of statelessness. With no protections, such as an identification card, you are unable to access basic services. This includes healthcare, jobs, education, or even the right to live. This gives way to grave human rights abuses. Through our podcast, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. There are many ways to do that. Here are just a few suggestions. First, educate yourself fully about what's happening. There are lots of great human rights reports from organizations like Fortify Rights, Human Rights Watch, the Holocaust Memorial Museum, Refugees International, and also Rohingya-led organizations like the Burmese Rohingya Organization in the UK and the Burma Human Rights Network. Second, write your elected officials in your country or state. Ask them to bring justice for the Rohingya people. Third, support activists and organizations on the ground working to provide life-saving services to the Rohingya populations. And last, help raise awareness about statelessness, displacement, and ethnic cleansing. Use the educational toolkits that we've prepared on our website in support of this podcast episode to learn more about these issues at large. Host a teach-in, share it with your friends, colleagues, and community. Knowledge is power. 
and you have the power to inspire change. To learn more about this episode, check out the links to resources on our show notes and on our website, findinghumanitypodcast.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you've enjoyed Finding Humanity, please share it and leave us a review. To learn more about topics in our podcast and other opportunities to engage with us, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at find underscore humanity and on Facebook at Finding Humanity Podcast. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producer is Diana Galbraith. Associate Production, Policy and Research by Martina Vanat, Aisha Amin, and Carolina Mendica. Mixing, Editing, and Music by Maverick Aquino. For this episode, I'd like to thank our speaker, Weiwei Nu, and our experts, David Sheffer, Matthew Smith, and our elder special segment guest, Ban Ki-moon. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.